Mac Power Users, episode 362, Mac Power Users Plus, recorded on January 25th, 2017. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Hello, David. Hey, Katie. How are you feeling? Well, uh, you could probably tell I've had a better week than this week. It's It's been a difficult one. We actually postponed the recording a day to to see if my voice would recover any. And it is what it is, folks. So I'm going to I'm going to try to stick it in here. I, I am sitting here sipping uh, tea, Earl Grey hot, of course. Um but uh, you, you you may have to do a lot of the talking this show, David. Never stop me before, Katie Floyd. No, well that that much is true. That much is true. Hey, uh, that, did you did you like choose Earl Grey hot, or was it just because Picard drinks it? You said that's the one for me. That's that's what I said. That is the tea for me. I've never tried anything else. I'm going to take you to uh, to a tea place next time we're together. As far as I'm concerned, there is no other tea. Okay. All right, Captain. Okay. All right. So we've got feedback. It's been a while since we've done a feedback show. And I thought we should just kind of clear out the decks because there's a bunch of it. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some great feedback. A couple of things we want to mention. Um, first off, we are busting at the seams with our MPU meetup in Chicago. Thank you so much to those of you who have registered. Uh, I think we are still going to be able to take some more people. So I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, the registration. We likely have outgrown our meetup location at the Hilton, and we are working on a great plan B location. So it will still be in Chicago, likely in downtown Chicago. Uh, and we are negotiating that spot as we speak. So we will send out the details to everyone who is registered on that alternate location. But uh um, we are very, very excited about what we are, what we're working on, and we look forward to seeing you all in Chicago. And the Facebook group is continuing to grow. We're now over a thousand members. Lots of great discussion going on there. If you haven't signed up yet, we've got a link in the show notes. So go ahead and click on it. It's a um, invite only, but basically anybody that listens to the show gets in. You just got to wait till one of us gets on to to approve you. And uh, that's just an effort to kind of keep out spammers and and folks who aren't going to be nice to each other. But otherwise, and if you're uh, mean, we can kick you out. Yeah, but we we aren't going to need to do that with our listeners. Everybody's great. No, lots of great discussion there. In fact, um, that's a great place to send feedback for the show. If you've got tips or tricks or things that you want to share, um, David and I are are trying to get through all the feedback that we can. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we just can't follow up on anymore because we get so much great feedback on it. And that Facebook group is a great place to do that. Uh, some great discussions there. In fact, you'll see some of the discussions that we have on this, this particular episode, we pulled from the Facebook group because uh, they are having a lot of good discussions there. And when it warrants that we probably will do that from time to time is, is pull some of the, the best discussions from the Facebook group uh, to share with the listeners as a whole, because we know that you, not all of you are in there. Yes. And we also love those audio comments coming in. So please keep them coming. We've got several in today's show. Uh, do please keep them to two minutes or less. We had a few we just couldn't use this month because they were just too long. And, um, and we get a lot of uh, angry folks if we play really long ones. So keep them short. Keep them great. Keep them coming. 
Yeah. So without further ado, let's kick it off with some of your listener questions this month. Uh, Martin wrote in with a question about sending email later. He says he's wondering if we have a good recommendation for scheduling emails at a later time. Send later was a mail plugin you may have recall and was great, but it's now been discontinued and its current state no longer compatible with Sierra. Its new replacement, Mail Butler, is a subscription service that costs $8 a month. What do we use? I personally uh, use Mail Act On for this, uh, for a one-time fee, and I suppose you have to keep it updated from time to time. Uh, Mail Act On will allow you to schedule emails to send at a later time. You can say send it 20 minutes from now. You can say send it at a particular day and time. And Mail Act On lets you do a whole lot more, including filing emails from your keyboard, moving emails around, and doing all site, uh, sorts of fun things. I've also heard Mail Hub uh, is another one of these uh, multiple-use mail plugins solutions that will allow you to do those types of things. So those are two options that you may want to check out. Yeah. Another way to do this, this is kind of the low tech way. I was on my iPad recently and uh, writing a bunch of email in the middle of the night because I got behind and was just trying to get caught up. But I didn't want them to go out at like 1 a.m. It just seemed weird. As, as someone who gets CC'd on your MPU feedback and has you as a favorite, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it wasn't that it was legal stuff. But the um, so what I do in those cases when I'm on iOS and I'm sure maybe there's there's apps to do it as well, but I'm using the Apple Mail app currently. Uh, I just save it as a draft and then I give myself a um, an alarm or a reminder or something the next morning just to go through and clear out all the um, the drafts and send them off. Uh, but uh, Katie solutions are great, too, and they're automated so you don't have to go through the manual steps. Now, the one thing is for those automated solutions like uh, Mail Act On, your computer does have to be on. I believe it will also trigger um, if mail is is activated um, and your computer is set to, what is it called, smart sleep or, or cat nap or something like that? I've, I've had a lot of cold medicine folks, so. Yeah, I, <laughs> cat nap. Cat, cat nap is not quite right. Power nap, I think, is what it's called. Yeah, you're close, though. Catnap's a good name too. I think PowerNap it does work with with yes. that. Like if you've got the lid down on your laptop, it'll be fine. I think they should have called it Catnap. Maybe back when they had the cat names. Yeah, why that, not? That would have been better. Anyway, yeah, Kitty Nap. Uh, moving on <laughs> before I get myself into too much trouble. Getting loopy, a little loopy am, already. We're I only am. a few minutes in, Katie. Oh, this could be go. a long show. Uh, <laughs> Lukash uh, has a question. Uh, maybe you can tackle this, David, about uh, GTD. Hi, David and Katie. I'm a fan of your show here in Poland. When I switched to Mac and iPhone a few years ago, I discovered, thanks to your work, many great apps. Today, I want to ask you the question about the GTD practice. I have been using OmniFocus for two years now. I've watched David's video field guide, which is great. I use deferred dates and sometimes due dates. However, when I read the new edition of David Allen's book, I realized that my system is not fully consistent with GTD, because my daily list does not include non-deferred items. And I think about things without deferred dates only during review, and I treat them only as not precise and future plans in the projects. This works, but I have a feeling that this is not the most efficient way, and I should work with non-deferred items also. What is your opinion? Do you work with non-deferred items on your lists? Thanks for your great work. Regards from Poland, Łukasz. Yeah, I am... Yeah, you know, we had David Allen on the show a couple times, and one of the things that that impressed me is he does this non-deferred item list, and he does a review every week of everything, and that's a I think that's foundational to GTD. If you read the book, but I can tell you, I am uh, a little bit off the reservation on this. Uh, 
I've tried that before and it just doesn't work for me. And the problem is I've got too much on my plate and that could be a problem that I have that I need to fix at a foundational level, maybe taking on less. But so long as I'm working the way I am and doing the the various things that I'm doing, uh, that stuff gets in the way for me when it's there all the time. I really get the uh, happy chemicals when I look at my task list and I see there's only 10 or 15 things for the day. And I know that it's something I can actually get done whenever I let it drift into, you know, non-deferred items. And I suddenly have increasing numbers of things going on. I, uh, I get down on myself and I never finish enough and it's just no fun. So uh, I made the decision long ago to kind of part with GTD Canon on that basis. And I'm very brutal about it. And I don't just defer everything one day. I look at it and really say, okay, when do I have time to do this? If you defer everything one day, then every day you go through the same kind of, you know, crisis. You see all the, these things on your list. So I'm, I'm pretty brutal about pushing things out and defer dates. And Lukash, that's the way that, that works for me. Uh, if I could get less stuff in my life, I think I could get a little bit more consistent with the, with the GTD method in that case. How about you, Katie? I, I tend to follow a little bit more your approach. There are a lot of things that I have recurring events and, and due dates that are years or month outs and, you know, things that only happen uh, on, you know, a couple of times a month, a couple of times a year. And that's nice because then I just don't have to worry about them and those things I've set my review out. Uh, I've, I've gotten lazy um, recently about just throwing things in my inbox and not really organizing them. And I, I need to sit down and do an in-depth review and clear those things out because I have gotten, you know, when the bullets are flying, we tend to to let things pile up and, and not be so good about that. But it is really disheartening when you see you've got six things on your forecast for tomorrow and there's no way you're going to be able to get six things done. Yeah. It's just, just as an example, um, I represent a bunch of Delaware companies. That's, you know, I'm a business lawyer and they, a lot of people make them in Delaware and there's a, um, a deadline in Delaware. It's coming up in a couple months for a company. You have to do this filing. And uh, every year on the 15th of January, I just, in my head, I just know that everything gets deferred to January 15th for those Delaware filings. And so they've been lingering around my OmniFocus now for a couple of days. And I've been very busy on some other problems uh, for clients. And so I just pushed all that stuff to February 1. And um, that still gives me plenty of time to get everything done. But now it's off my plate and I won't be thinking about it until the 1st of February. And that's just like one of the little decisions I'll make as I go through my day. And if you can make those decisions and put those things off far enough where you're not letting somebody down, but at the same time, taking care of business, um, it can really be an effective way to, to get on with your day and, and get actually get work done. But I don't think anybody in GT, I know there's GTT folks that listen, they may not like that I do that. So I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Viet from Facebook has a question about managing an iPhone with only 16 gigabytes. He says he has a corporate iPhone 6S with only 16 gigabytes and spends a lot of time managing free space. Some apps are good at cleaning up, like Overcast. Some have huge cache files, like Google Maps or Facebook, and wants to know if we can recommend a good cache or data cleaning program so that it doesn't have to manually uninstall, reinstall apps like Google Maps, Facebook, and others. And, um, I mean, obviously, this is going to be a chronic problem with a 16-gigabyte iPhone, but if you're given one in the corporate environment, it, it is what it is. This is one of the big reasons, even though I now have a 128 gigabyte iPhone, I uninstalled Facebook on my iPhone. Um, other reasons were just a in general increase in productivity and uh, Facebook 
app generally not being a good iOS citizen, and then Facebook got rid of their paper app, which was their better app on iOS. But Facebook has always had problems with huge cache files and those types of things. So if I run Facebook on my iPhone, I run it as a web app. And you can still do that from uh, just about any web page that has a, a mobile optimized version is you can set it as an icon and run it as a web app. And that's what I do with with certain files or certain applications or that just don't behave on iOS is I don't use them. And so I've done that with Facebook. Um, Google Maps, obviously there's an alternative. You can use Apple Maps, which I think is a little better iOS citizen. You could use Google Maps uh, in the browser, but you don't get as many features. As far as a good cache and data cleaning program, that's tough because there's not really one. You, you can't really build one and then stay in compliance with the App Store. I think there are a lot of things in the App Store that may say that they are, uh, but they probably don't last very long in the App Store. Um, there's supposedly this trick where if you run out of space on your iPhone and you try to download a movie or rent a movie on iOS that exceeds your maximum free space, that iOS in the background will then do a lot of this this cleanup to try to make space available uh, to uh, to make room for the movie file. Have you seen that hack mentioned online, David? Yeah, but I've never experimented with it. And it's, it seems to work for some people, but, but again, it's a crazy workaround. Um, this is a problem that I think Apple is ultimately going to have to solve by either giving users a better way to manage these types of files, but I, I don't think they are. Um, so app developers are either going to have to be better iOS citizens or we're just going to have to make decisions about the types of apps that we use. Um, things like optimized storage tend to work well. You can do that with uh, music. You can do that with photos to some extent. You know, you can choose to keep most of your data online and stream and those types of things. Uh, but for apps that are just bad citizens, um, I evict them. Well, you know, we both railed against that decision to continue releasing 16 gigabyte iPhones. It was like two or three years. I remember every year we'd go to WWDC or the new iPhone would come out and we'd say, this is the year they're going to bump it up over 16 gigabyte. And for a long time, they did not. And, um, you know, part of the problem here is you said Apple can fix it. In a lot of ways, Apple created this problem by selling a phone that's so drastically, you know, has so little memory this late in the game. And, and, you know, when you say people are going to have to get around it, someone like Viet who, you know, gets it for work, that's their experience with the iPhone. What's going to keep them from just getting an Android phone when they want to buy one for themselves after having this terrible experience? I, I don't know. I just feel like this is kind of Apple reaping what they sow. And I, I really wish that we wouldn't have these questions and that they hadn't released that phone. But Facebook is a horrible iOS citizen. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's kind of um, a multiple of sins here. <laughs> By the way, have we mentioned the MPU Facebook group? <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> and you know what? It's funny because I have, um, I, I, I've gotten into Facebook recently. A bunch of family was just telling you, know, we've got some new babies in the family. So everybody's telling me I'm not going to see any pictures unless I just join Facebook, which is what led to us kind of saying, all right, let's go ahead and do the the Facebook group. I was the, always the one resistant to it and uh, it's fine, but I just use it on my Mac. I haven't used it on my, my iOS devices at all. And I don't go on it very often. So I'm not a big Facebook user, but if you're not, you know, you can get away with like Katie, just using it in the browser or just doing it on your Mac. Yeah. I te I tend to be a once a day Facebook person. Um, I've, I've been told though, this might be a subject for free agents, David, I'll give you this one for free. 
Um, I've been told that people are using Facebook more and more as a marketing tool for their business. That's where the people are. Yeah. So. Okay. You want to hear from Gary? Yeah. Gary wants to know, is there a plugin that's trusted uh, that he can use to take a screenshot of an entire website or something that is, you know, larger than a, a single page on a screen uh, where he would normally have to scroll so that he doesn't have to stitch a bunch of individual screenshots together. And I just came across this issue because I was taking, you know, you and I are both presenting at the ABA Tech Show this year, and I was just taking a screenshot of a particularly long keyboard maestro macro and had to come up with with a solution to this problem. Um, and the, the folks in Facebook also came up with some solutions to this problem, and we did as well. Um, a couple of options for Mac include uh, Paparazzi and Snagit um, are, are two options. David, you also recommended uh, PDF Pen Pro. Yeah, it has an option there to, to save a website to PDF. So it depends what you're going to use it for. But that's I've used that um, when I'm like on the legal side. If I want to capture a website, sometimes there's a lot of shenanigans going on on a website. We want to capture it. Uh, PDF Pen Pro can do that. Um, we've got Chuck who wants guidance on a VPN service. They're going on a cruise soon and want to use a VPN when on public Wi-Fi. The requirements are it must be reliable and fast. The pricing must be fair. It must have support for multiple devices. They have three iPhones, an iPad, and a MacBook Pro that need to be covered. And something that's fairly simple to use. And I think um, the the one that, that I use uh, is Cloak. And I like that. It's it's primarily iOS, although they are building out um, uh, PC-based uh, options at this point. I like Cloak because it's it's very simple. It has an auto-on feature, so you can you can set it to turn on automatically when you hop onto an untrusted network, which is great, particularly for uh, iOS devices when you're browsing around from going from your office to Starbucks to to other strange places. Um, and they've got pretty flexible pricing. I keep on one of their their low plans, which gives me a couple of gigabytes a month uh, to to use every day. But then when I travel and I need more space than that, then I can bump it up to one of their higher tier plans and cover me there. Now, David, are you still using TunnelBear? Because I've used them as well. I've been very happy. Yeah, I use them. They they were a sponsor years ago, and I just started using them because they were a sponsor, and they they've been fine. I have not used them in a couple months now, but I mean, they were fine the last time I needed them. And um, those are both, I think, good, reliable services. You know, going on a cruise ship, you're not going to get, you know, chuck a lot of internet. So just just be warned. <laughs> I mean, you were on a cruise ship recently, Katie. I mean, it, it, it's, it is a dribble of ones and zeros coming in. And potentially very expensive dribble of ones and zeros coming in. So so be aware of that. The one thing that I must say that I really like about TunnelBear, um, I recommend TunnelBear right now to people who have to be cross-platform and want to use it on multiple devices. TunnelBear um, does have a free plan if you need to use very little a month. Um, and they uh, also are super, super simple. So it's it's literally a big on-off button that you can turn on and off the VPN. So it doesn't get much simpler than that. And they have cute little bears. So what's not to like about cute little bears? Yeah, the, the way I dealt with the when we went on a cruise years ago is whenever we were in a port, I would go into a Starbucks and tap into their Wi-Fi using one of these services. And I would just download and bulk all the email. And um, it was just like slurping in whatever the Internet had thrown at me in the last two or three days. 
And then when I was at sea, I could spend a couple hours going through it, but not send anything and just wait until we got in port again. And I'd go in and do the same. And that worked for me. So good, good luck. Enjoy your vacation check. Don't spend it all on the internet. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Away, because your luggage shouldn't cost more than your plane ticket. Get $20 off with the code MPU at awaytravel.com slash MPU. I don't know why, but a lot of us have got in the habit of disposable luggage. We buy this cheap luggage, we take a few trips, we throw it away, and we start all over again. Instead, why don't you get something that can last? With our new sponsor, Away, there's a whole collection of suitcases made with premium German polycarbonate, which is unrivaled in strength and impact resistance while still remaining lightweight. This gives you the best of both worlds. It's something that's strong, but at the same time, not super heavy. They've got four sizes of suitcases with the carry-on, a bigger carry-on, the medium, and the large. I love the names, by the way. And they have nine fantastic colors for you to choose from. A lot of times these days, airlines will pressure you to check your carry-on. But with the Away polycarbonate cover, you're fine. If you have to check your bag, you don't have to worry about it. The interior is pretty great, too. It's got this patent-pending compression system, which is incredibly helpful if you're an overpacker. Uh, the Away carry-ons are compliant with all the U.S. major airlines while still maximizing the amount you can pack. I've got an Away bag, and it's got these 360-degree spinner wheels that roll great. I've already drug it through the airport and had no trouble whatsoever. And four wheels are so much better than two. The Away suitcases also have TSA combination locks built right in, so you don't have to buy that separately. And with a really nice touch, it's got a built-in removable washable laundry bag. No longer do you have to mix your dirty clothes with your clean ones when you travel. The coolest part of the Away bag, and the thing that all the Mac Power Users fans are going to love, is that it's got built-in USB power. That's right, this is a suitcase that can recharge your phone. Now, we've all walked through airports and seen people on the ground around the AC adapters trying to get their phones plugged in. What if you carried that power brick right in your luggage? That's what you can do with the Away. It's got a built-in battery that can charge your phone up to five times, and it's got a USB port right on top. You can just plug in with your cord and charge while you're waiting to board your plane. You will be the most popular person in the airport with an Away suitcase. Katie and I are headed to Chicago in a couple months for the Mac Power User Meetup and the ABA Tech Show, and I'm going to Florida in a few months to go to the Star Wars celebration because I'm a nerd, and you can bet I'm going to have my Away suitcase with me on both trips. Best of all, the Away suitcases come with a lifetime guarantee. That's right, lifetime. If anything breaks, they'll fix it or replace it for life. And they also have a 100-day trial, so you can live with it, travel with it, and then make your decision whether this is the right suitcase for you. You can return it for a full refund with no questions asked. So travel smarter with a suitcase that charges your phone. To find out more, go to awaytravel.com slash MPU. And if you use the code MPU at checkout, you'll get $20 off any of their suitcases. That's awaytravel.com slash MPU and offer code MPU for $20 off. With the 100-day free trial, you can't go wrong. Thank you, Away, for your support of this show and all of Relay FM. So we have a, a couple of um, longer items here that that might generate some discussion. Carly wants to know the internal, the uh, eternal question of: Do I buy or do I wait? <laughs> she consider buying an iPad Pro nine point seven inch, and she wants to know whether to buy now or hold until the next version is announced. Well, 
I, yeah. this is one I would, uh, you know, everything depends on your needs. If you really need it today, go buy it. It's a great device, whether they replace it tomorrow or next week or next month. It's, it's, it is a great device. But if you are just kind of in the market shopping around and you don't need it right away, I think we're kind of at the point with the iPad Pro where I'd wait. Uh, there's a bunch of rumors right now that they've got a potentially new size somewhere between the big and the small iPad Pro. And um, and there's a lot of um, rumors that they're going to update the largest iPad Pro because it's been over a year and a half now since the uh, original came out. So there's probably some cool stuff down the road this spring. And uh, like I said, you know, it's not that long away. So if, if you can wait two or three months, I would wait and see what happens. Yeah, I, I agree with David. If I use my iPad Pro every day and if something happened and I no longer had access to it, then yeah, I would go out and I would buy another one tomorrow because I need it. But if if you have something that works and if it's working for you and you're just curious, I, I would wait. I think we're going to see a new iPad Pro um, in March or April, probably April. And I, I don't know whether it's going to be this big revolutionary change that we think it's going to be. Rumors have it that we're going to get this new 10 point something inch size that is kind of the same physical size as the 9.7 inch, but a little different form factor. I'm kind of curious about that, David. I, I don't want anything physically larger, but the idea of a smaller bezel really intrigues me. Yeah, that's, the rumor is it's going to be about the size of the the medium size iPad, but with a screen that, that's much larger, you know, so smaller bezel. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about that. Now, you love your big behemoth 12-inch iPad. Yeah. Um would you be in the market for a 10 point something inch iPad that is physically smaller but did have the same screen real estate? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I you know, the dust has settled on all this now for me in a lot of ways. The um uh, I'm using the the big iPad Pro for like working on word documents big you know like work projects it's like it is you know we did a whole show on can it be a laptop replacement and quite often it can i take it on the road with me for client meetings i love the big screen for sheet music i play the piano and i try to do it daily and having an apple pencil and four score and the large size ipad pro with you know middle-aged eyes looking at the screen it it is great um but, uh, you know, having one would be nice, too. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. But no longer am I going to just out uh, say no to anything because every time I do, I end up buying it. And then Katie rubs it in my face for six months. So Yes, this is true. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not going to say no, but but I, I would wait to see what they're going to do. I, I'm very happy with my iPad situation currently, though. Yeah, I, I'm very happy with my 9.7 inch iPad Pro. I don't want to go at anything that's physically any larger. But if there was a iPad that had a bigger screen, but in the same form factor, of course, I'm going to be open to that. I tend to not buy iPads every year. So it I think it would be a stretch for me to to buy the new one unless it was a really significant upgrade. And then, of course, I'd have to run the numbers and you know see what I could sell this one for. Maybe I could sell it to Carly. Who knows? The um just while we're on the subject, you know, what, you know, there is a place called the Mac Rumors Buying Guide. If you it's buyersguide.macrumors.com. It's always pretty good. Uh, currently, they're they're saying caution about buying the new iPads, and that's for the same reason Katie and I just talked about. Uh, on the iPhone, they're neutral. I think we can expect a new iPhone about September, so it's nine months away. If you can wait that long and you want a new iPhone, um, on the Macs. 
their uh, the MacBook Pro they're saying buy now because I don't think we're going to get any updates. We just got the update. The iMac, I would not buy now. Um, the iMac is overdue, and I expect we're going to get something on that pretty soon. In fact, it's kind of sad looking at the Mac line. They don't, they, re- they recommend don't buy the don't buy the iMac, don't buy the Mac Mini, don't buy the Mac Pro. All of those are super overdue for updates. And the MacBook itself, you know, the, the new MacBook that showed up a couple of years ago, um, they have caution on. I don't know. I wouldn't hesitate to get one of those. I just spoke with a listener, or actually corresponded with a listener who bought a new MacBook and really loves it. I think those are probably fine now. Uh, David wants to know what our current RSS workflow is. We haven't really talked about that for a while, and there's been some shakeup in the RSS uh, read it later market. Um, so I think it's you know probably appropriate just to kind of update people on on what we're doing. Yeah, you first. So I um, had a tragedy in my RSS read it later um, life, and that my very very dearly beloved app, Mister Reader is now gone. Um, Yeah, it's the one that had the top hat that you didn't like for so long. I never liked that icon. (laughs) The the, the icon was a little problematic. They they updated it at some point to make it a little less annoying, but I loved the functionality of that application. And um, it's dead. It died. It just, the the developer couldn't justify continued development anymore. And it was really sad. So my current workflow is I have a couple of dozen RSS feeds that I subscribe to through Feedly, um, which is, um, you know, kind of the one of the replacements to the Google Reader service. And right now I have everything coming in through Reader. So that's Reader with two E's. I use Reader on the Mac, on iOS, and on the iPhone now. So I use uh, Reader everywhere. And it's fine. Uh, it continues to be updated, at least to the point where it works. And, and that's all right. Not Not like Mr. Reader, but it's fine. Um, and then I have an interesting workflow. Um, you may know, David, that I do these uh, these weekend review posts that I do every Sunday on my on my website. They're really great, by the way. Well, thank you. Oh, especially and, when I'm in them. But. <laughs> and um, one of the things that I do every every week or every morning is I kind of I wake up and I go through the the Twitter and the RSS feeds and I see things that are interesting to me. And I've started using Pinboard quite a bit. Um, I've had a Pinboard account forever. I was one of these people who was grandfathered in at a low flat price. And so Pinboard is like social bookmarking. It's when you find a uh, bookmark or something that you're interested in, uh, it's a way to save it so that you can publicly share it if you want or just keep it as part of your personal archive. So I used to save those types of things that I was in my RSS workflow uh, to um, Instapaper um, but now I save a lot of those things to Pinboard. And so I save them to Pinboard if there's something that I'm interested in or that I think um, Mac Power Users listeners or my followers might be interested in or that I think might ultimately end up in that week in review post. So anything that really catches my fancy that I think is particularly tech newsworthy, I am saving to Pinboard. And uh, there are a couple of um, applications that that have uh, share sheet integration that will allow you to save to Pinboard. And so I've got those installed on iOS and then Reader will allow you to save directly from Pinboard. And then Pinboard has a couple of fun integrations. So if you go to my website over at katiefloyd.com, you'll see over in the sidebar, um, I have a reading list. So as soon as I save something to Pinboard, a link to that shows up in my reading list. So while not everything I save to Pinboard makes it to my week in review post. I think like the last 20 things that I've saved to Pinboard 
show up in that reading list. And of, of course, you can go to my pinboard page and, and see everything that I've saved. But it's just a nice place for me to save everything that I'm interested in or that I think is 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 worth reading. And then anything that I personally want to read later um, or that I didn't get a chance to read as I was going through it in my RSS feed, because I read a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in just right there in the RSS reader, um, then that I send to Instapaper. And then that, but Instapaper is really more just for me now to read. Um, I have, um, simplified things quite a bit on this. Um, I, I use unread is my RSS. I still use RSS. That's a, that's one of the, the things everybody talks about these days is do you need RSS anymore? Uh, I think I do. I, there's certain websites. I don't want to miss what happens. Katiefloyd.com uh, is one of them. I want to see what Katie writes every week. Um, so I don't rely on Twitter or some, you know, just kind of finding stuff through social media, but I have a, a list of blogs that I like and, a lot of them are kind of low volume blogs. I don't, I don't do RSS feeds to like new sites because I just don't want to get flooded with that stuff. And I do believe like the, the kind of the news of the day is going to find its way to me anyway. Anyway, so I've got a, a, a curated list that I look at unread. I only use unread on my iPhone and occasionally my iPad, but largely it's a phone thing and I'll just flip through it. And it's nice. I go through it every day or two. And when I see something I like, and for years, I've been talking about this on the show, how, you know, we use, you know, all these different read it later services and how we were using Penboard to archive things forever and you know, all this stuff we were doing. And you know what I realized? I was spending my wills on that stuff and not using any of those features. It was great that I had stuff that was saved forever. I was never going back and reading any of it. And I, I looked one day in my read it later service, which was... Didn't you use read it later? No, I, I didn't. I, I used two or three different ones, but I, at one point I looked in it and there's like over a thousand articles that I had saved in there. And I just realized it was madness. And I just, I decided to do a clean flush. You know, I just started over again and I'm using reading list, you know, which is the least uh, useful of all these services. It's built into Mac and iOS into Safari and it's Apple's solution. It doesn't save it for offline viewing. It, it's, you know, it's just not, super feature rich it's the basic version but it's got a button on virtually every ios and mac device to make it very easy to save stuff to reading list and i have an OmniFocus repeating task every sunday that just says flush reading list and anything that by sunday that i haven't dealt with or read i just delete it and i move on to the next week <laughs> i feel like i uh i think i've i think this problem is much easier for me now that i've done this all right. So, yeah, so you, if you don't read it later, you don't read it at all. Yeah. I mean, because that, that, I was building up all this stuff that I was, I was theoretically going to read someday and I don't have time to read it. And so I've got a manageable list every week I look through and sometimes I'll look through those articles and something will be a fodder for a blog post I'm going to write. And I save it to OmniFocus to write a blog post around it or Maybe I'll just read it and then get rid of it or maybe something I share with a friend. But at the end of the day on Sunday, whatever hasn't been dealt with in there is was not a, not important enough for me to deal with it this week. That means I'm never going to deal with it. So I just clear it out and start again on Monday. A little extreme, I guess. Right. But but uh, I don't want the baggage of of having a thousand unread articles somewhere that I'm supposed to read. I think that about uh, wraps up our our question portion of the show. Let's talk a little bit about Devon Think. We have got a lot of feedback about Devon Think. 
Yeah, and this is a sampling. We got so much feedback that we could we couldn't include. I think we would have had to do another full hour and a half show on just in the feedback on Devin. Think um, if we could put a theme to it, I'd say that most people are really bully about Devin. Think a lot of people really love it, and uh, its users are very supportive. And once we did the show on it, we heard tons of ways people were using it on their own. I think. The negative email we got on Devon Think was very little, if any. I can't uh, offhand. I really can't think of anyone saying that they they weren't a, that they tried it and didn't like it. All right. Well, let's let's run through some of it. Um, Evan has a trick to forward things to Devon Think by email. He was curious about forwarding documents like we can do with Evernote, and he says this is possible by a mail rule script. He set up a spare Gmail account in the mail app, and any message that comes into that account is imported into his DevonThink inbox. He says, unlike Evernote, though, you can't use syntax for like the message subject and the tags and those types of things. Yeah, and he also talked about that one of the questions I had was, if you're going to start throwing your documents into DevonThink, you're losing the ability to have automation like Hazel do work for you. And he clarified DevonThink ships with some automator actions that can be used in conjunction with Hazel to monitor a folder and file documents from that folder into various DevonThink databases. So once Hazel puts it there, then DevonThink could auto-import it with the automation, which is a good way to kind of have your cake and eat it too. He says it takes little work to set up, but it ends up working just fine. And I am... Um, and Evan wasn't the only person to send that tip in and I've been playing with it, but you know, like this is a big move for me uh, going into a system by a software developer. It's, 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 as I said, in the Devon think show, it's really hard for me to put my stuff into somebody's system. I always like the idea of having it very portable, but um, there's a lot to like about Devon think. We also heard from Richard who wanted to talk about syncing indexed items he says, I just listened to your show on DevonThink, and I thought you might point out that there's a setting that lets you sync indexed PDF files to iOS. So that makes it easier. So under the Sync tab in DevonThink Preferences on the Mac, selecting and locating equals Sync Store, and then clicking on the blue information button on the bottom of the list box reveals an option that lets you select whether or not to synchronize content of indexed items. So uh, you really have a lot of say. I, I think one of the reasons we did that show on DevonThink and, Think and the reasons why I'm more interested in it now than I ever have been is because they've really solved the problem of iOS. So folks who do work with an iPad now have an ability to make Devon think a, a legitimate part of their workflow. We had so many people write in to talk to us. Um, and I think uh, Richard was one of the first ones. I'm sorry, Mark was one of the first ones to say um, that Devon think is not a roach motel. Um, one of the most important and overlooked features of DevonThink is that it is not a proprietary database. It's like iTunes. It's not using the database for files and does not alter your original content at all. If you import a file into DevonThink, it's just moved to another folder like iTunes does with music files. If DevonThink should die without warning, you're still able to find all of your files and move them somewhere else. You can check inside the Finder or inside the DevonThink by just right-click in Document and say Show in Finder. I think that's important to note for people who are worried about these proprietary systems. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I was thinking about, because this is the thing I keep going over, I, I have a very good system right now where Hazel automatically files and takes a lot of the documents into my life and takes care of them automatically. And I could move those folders anywhere. They would still work. Um, and even though I understand DevonThink is not a Roach Motel, it still is 
it still is a method of organization for those files that's different than the one that I've very carefully built over the years. Uh, but, you know, because DevonThink, one of the things you do get with the DevonThink Pro Office is automatic OCR of everything. I, I honestly think I could probably have all that stuff in just a couple big folders and still find it easily enough with the way you can search uh, for text. So, like I said, it, 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 I am using it uh, very seriously uh, with the thought of, of going even deeper down this road. Um, Katie, are you are you trying to put Devin Think in your life or is this something that you're just not interested in right now? No, I'm using Devin Think, but I'm using it in a limited way. I'm not trying to use Dev. The mistake that I made with Evernote, and I still use Evernote for certain things, is that I used Evernote as an everything bucket. And I just... And you went all in. Yeah, yeah. I put everything in there. And, and as a result, it started to become less efficient. So I, I think I mentioned on that show, I'm using Devon Think for a very, very specific thing. And that is for right now, um, organizing like uh, legal forms, CLEs, files, um, basically reference it, reference material in my day job. So that's what I'm using it for. Uh, uh, Scott had a comment about uh, round tripping with Devon Think and iOS. Hi, David and Katie. This is Scott Loheed at Scott is loud on Twitter. I love the episodes with Stuart and Gabe focusing on DevonThink. You covered a lot of ground, but I wanted to touch base on something that I don't think you discussed, and that's the idea of round tripping on iOS. We've all experienced those cases where trying to work with files across multiple iOS applications means we're left with a trail of duplicates, never sure which one is the most up-to-date or if we've even returned the edited document to its original home app, where we usually end up with a duplicate of the original anyway. Devin think to go tries to mitigate this issue in a creative way. I'll explain with an example. Let's say I have a PDF in DevonThink called SpicyCarrotRecipe.pdf, and I want to annotate this using my favorite PDF annotation application, PDF Expert. I can use the share sheet in DevonThink to open the file in PDF Expert. You'll notice once you do this that DevonThink has appended a numeric suffix to the file name so that it says SpicyCarrotRecipe129.pdf, for example. Once I make my annotations, I can bring that file back home to DevonThink by using the share sheet in PDF Expert to import to DevonThink. Note that we should not use the clip to DevonThink action because this process won't work. We must use the import to DevonThink. When I do this, I'm taken back to DevonThink and DevonThink recognizes that numeric suffix, and instead of creating a duplicate with my modifications, the original file is updated with my annotations. This means that, at least in DevonThink, I only ever have one copy of my file. Now this process leaves me with a duplicate in PDF Expert, and that's a shortcoming of iOS. But as long as I make sure I finish my round trip, I know I can delete these duplicates because my annotated spicy carrot recipe is safe and sound back in DevonThink. It's not revolutionary, but it eases the pain of using multiple apps on a single file in iOS. Thank you very much. That was a great tip. Yes, um, and he did an excellent job of getting it all in there in just shy of two minutes. <laughs> he did. And he did it, and he talked about spicy carrots, which I'd love, by the way. Um so I, I went and tested this out after Scott sent this in and it absolutely works. And this is not a complete solution for a failing in iOS, but it, it is a workaround. And and hopefully soon we'll get a solution from Apple as iOS gets more powerful. But uh, I really like this. So thank you, Scott, for sharing that. And Scott, I'm sorry I called you Richard. It's okay. I'm sure he's, he's, he's okay. He's having some spicy carrots. He can't be angry. Yes. And he knows that I'm a little tripped up on cold medication right now. 
Okay, so we have a little problem. Um, we can continue to do Dev and Think follow up, but we're going to have to change it to Dev and Think power users because honestly, there there's so much. Or we can just say, okay, we're going to close the door on Dev and Think for a little while. Um, you know, and maybe we'll come back to it in six months and see where we're using it. Uh, it sounds like Katie's got to use. I am uh, growing a list of libraries I'm using with Dev and Think and and playing with them. So we may uh, we may be even more true believers in six months, but. We're going to close the books on, on follow up on that one for a little while. Yeah. And I would say if you have more, you want to share about Dev and think if you have a tip, we had so many people send emails. Uh, this is just a, a selection of those. Um, and I had to write so many people and say, we're, we're going to try to include your email. We might not. Uh, the Facebook group is a good place to consider sharing those tips and tricks if you want to continue the discussion uh, of Dev and think. So consider that as well. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Clean up your inbox in minutes with SaneBox. Email is a continuing problem. It's a problem for me, and I know it's a problem for a lot of our listeners. My secret weapon in the fight against email is SaneBox. Put simply, SaneBox is a collection of tools to make your email work better for you. It doesn't require a special application or even a special sort of email. It works with Exchange and Google and IMAP. But either way, it can supercharge your email. Let me just tell you a few ways that I use SaneBox every day. The first is email deferring. I made fun of this feature when I first heard about it, but now I love it. So when an email comes in, maybe it's important, but something that you can't deal with today or something that is more appropriate to deal with tomorrow or next week. With SaneBox, you can set up these defer boxes and you move an email into the deferred box and then it disappears from your inbox and it shows up in whatever set period of time you ask. It could be three hours or it could be three weeks. For instance, I have one with the law practice set for Monday. Sometimes emails come in towards the end of the week that I know I'm not going to be able to deal with till the following week. I just put it in the Monday box and Monday morning, then I get through all of that. Another great feature in SaneBox is the auto filtering. SaneBox looks at your inbox for you and it cleans it up. So as an email comes in, maybe you get an email from a company that you buy your shirts from. SaneBox can move that into a separate folder that's not as important as your inbox. I have one of those called news and it puts those news items and marketing items into that folder. I only look through that every three or four days, whereas the inbox I look through every day. There's another one that SaneBox can create for you called later. And that's one for uh, friends and maybe coworkers that aren't super important. Uh, they don't need to be in your inbox, but still something you want to look at. I look at my later box once a day. So at the end of the day, as the email comes you know, flooding into my inbox, the same box is constantly filtering it into these other folders. And the stuff that remains in the inbox is truly the important stuff. So when I wake up in the morning or when I look at my email in the afternoon, I usually see three or four emails in there that are truly important and need quick action. It makes it really, I guess, for a lack of a better word, sane uh, to deal with your email in that way. Then I go through those less important boxes less frequently. It just makes everything a lot easier. If you're struggling with email, you can't go wrong with SaneBox. Head over to SaneBox.com slash MPU. And if you do that, you get a free $25 credit towards your SaneBox subscription. That's a good deal for you, and you're going to really like the service. Thanks, SaneBox, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. All right, David, um, one of your favorite subjects is using the iPad as a notebook 
replacement. Yeah, that was a popular show. We got a lot of feedback on it. Uh, One of the bits of feedback we got from Josh. And uh, Josh wrote in to say he's a totally blind college student and began using a 9.7-inch iPad Pro in the classroom. He uses Microsoft Word to take notes in class and saves notes to OneDrive. From there, he can review them on his 13-inch MacBook Air on or on a Windows laptop. While he was able to use his Air in class, he loved the simplicity and increased portability of the smaller iPad. Originally, he purchased the iPad to serve as a cross-service ebook reader. He has Kindle content, which he cannot read with a screen reader on the Macs, and iBook contact, content that he can't read on the PC. So the iPad solves that problem beautifully, um, I guess because it's so accessible. Uh, he uses the Logitech Create keyboard, which I know a lot of people love for the 9.7-inch iPad Pro, uh, which has really made the device come alive. Josh says that he greatly prefers using an iPad with a keyboard as opposed to the touchscreen due to its size and can tell that Apple really took care to design the iPad to be used so frequently with a keyboard because he gets the best sound output when he has it in keyboard mode. Josh says that Apple has revolutionized the accessible world for the blind, making it possible for him to use a mainstream device in the classroom versus a $5,000 specialized note taker, along with a host of other improvements through various apps that allows him to access more information at his fingertips than ever before. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know, iOS is very friendly to uh, folks that have uh, disabilities or issues and it's also just convenient. You know, I am, um, I ride my bike a lot, you know, because where I live, I, I work from home many days and I can write a contract in Starbucks as easily as I can in my home office. And sometimes I just need to get out. And, you know, when you're getting on, a bike or when you're getting ready to get in a car with a small bag, an iPad is just an order of magnitude easier to carry around than a laptop. And I think that's a reason a lot of people want to try and use them as a laptop replacement. Uh, Randy wrote in about using a virtual server to solve a problem. He said, unfortunately, my writing and publishing workflow has made using the iPad difficult. So he uses Emacs and Markdown and LaTeX Pandora and all these stuff to convert document formats. And and this stuff really isn't that friendly on iOS. So uh, he found he could either get a Linux server, uh, uh, which he hosts from DigitalOcean for only $5 a month. And that made the iPad a true power user machine because after installing and configuring Dropbox, Emacs, and Vim on the server, he now can open and connection with Panex Prompt 2 app, which is a great um, terminal app for iPad uh, to create a markdown document off that server. So basically the iPad becomes a window into that server that he's paying $5 a month for. And that solved his problem. I mean, a lot of people are finding ways around this stuff. Let's hear from Brent. Dear Katie and David, I'm Brent. I've been a long time listener. I'm a high school teacher in China and I have an iPad workflow I'd like to share with you. I will try to make this as pithy as possible. First of all, I teach all my classes with a 9.7 inch iPad Pro. Because I have to move from class to class, the 12.9-inch was just too big to carry around all day long. I teach two writing classes with a heavy emphasis on TOEFL, which is a timed writing 
So every week I give them a topic and then take them to the computer lab, all PCs, unfortunately. At the end of the time, the student's writing comes to the teacher's computer. I download all the essays on a thumb drive. I then connect my thumb drive to my MacBook Air and I use ExpressVPN to tunnel through the Great Firewall of China and upload the essays to Google Drive. Then I import them to Notability, and I'm able to mark them up and make comments on them using the Apple Pencil. I then email the marked up SH to each student as a PDF. Using the Apple Pencil works much faster than I can possibly do it on the Mac, and the best part is if my students are making many of the same mistakes, I can display it on the smart board. Thanks for your show, and keep up the good work. I, I know I sound like a broken record, Katie, but document annotation just works on the iPad, especially now that the Apple Pencil is here. Uh, anybody that has a job that involves reviewing and, and marking up documents, if you haven't tried it yet and you've got an iPad and a pencil, just next time make a point of doing it. I know it's kind of a pain in the neck, but at least you don't have to, at least most people don't have to go through the Great Firewall of China to get it onto their iPad <laughs> like Brent does. That's true. And uh, it, it's not that difficult to get those things on there. Uh, one note I would make, uh, Brent mentioned in passing, I think Notability is the app he uses for that. Um, that is a super popular app for, for that purpose. I hear from that from listeners and readers all the time. In fact, uh, Ray wrote to us about how he uses Notability as part of his paperless iPad workflow. Ray is a professional business coach and thanks to the iPad has been paperless for over two years. His workflow is as follows. After a coaching meeting, he recaps the notes from the meeting in an email. He then saves a PDF version of that email in Evernote, which he says he has to do on his Mac, unfortunately. I think they should. But he doesn't. I don't think he does. He should listen to our last show, right? Yeah, Ray, there's a PDF (laughs) trick. You can save it to a PDF. So he's got to save it as a PDF. And then how does he get that PDF into Evernote? I guess, oh, then he uses the share extension to get into Evernote. That'll work. Yeah. Ray, you can do that. It's fine. Uh, Prior to the next coaching meeting with the client, he then imports the PDF version of the previous notes in Evernote over to Notability. And during the meeting, he uses Notability to take handwritten notes right on top of the PDF of the previous session's notes. And then he sent us an example. Uh, He then uses the notes from Notability with split screen on the 12.9 inch iPad to write an email of the current meeting's notes and then starts the process all over again. I can imagine that after a while, you're just going to get notes with notes with notes with notes with notes. Well, hopefully, Uh, hopefully your coaching sessions are so successful, the notes get smaller. Uh, But, you know, something, a theme that comes out of all this, and there was more feedback. I'm sorry if we didn't get get yours. Uh, There was just so much again of this stuff. But the um, but there's a lot of people that have found ways to make the iPad work. And the way they do it is they find the limits of what they're doing with their computing and they find if the iPad fits within in it. I mean, I went on my own spirit quest with this and it worked for me largely. Like like when I get on my bike and go to write contracts, I still use my iPad to do that. I'm not bringing the MacBook Pro, but the um, it, it just I think if you can find your limits and you can find that the iPad fits within those limits. Uh, then it can be a very successful portable computer for you. And I think the onus is now on Apple to 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 up their game, you know, to raise the ceiling of what you can do with an iPad with future releases. Uh, you know, we're now in January, uh, fastly approaching uh, uh, February. I know, I guess just in today's news, I saw some references to betas of iOS 10.3, and I have not read them yet. I don't know exactly what's in there, but I'm, I'm hoping we're getting some more power tools for iPad soon. 
Yeah, so there's some neat stuff uh, so far in the betas of iOS 10.3. Like developers can respond to apps, reviews, and a few other things. Um, you can find my earpods now and uh, find my iPhone. But um, we haven't seen any of the real new revolutionary features that we saw in, was it iOS 9.3? That was kind of the mid-feature release? It's only the first beta, so we'll see. And no, I have not lost my earpods. I don't don't know why. Your AirPods. AirPods. How do, you, how, do you, how do you lose them? You stick them in the case and you're done. I, I lost mine for one day and I was so sad. So sad. I haven't lost mine yet. Knock on, I better knock on something. We've gotten a lot of feedback from people about the transporter. You know, the we talked about transporter on the show. David and I were both big fans of the file transporter. They were a sponsor of Mac power users for, I think over a year. And then they got sold. Um, they, they got bought out by, I think Nexan. Is that who bought connected data? I think it was Nexan. And unfortunately, Nexan decided to take it in a different direction. They, um, they've decided to focus more on, uh, the, professional uh, rather than the consumer and more on the commercial market space. And we've gotten a, a lot of questions from people who really liked the idea of personal cloud storage. And and we did too. And yeah, I mean, I was invested in that. I, I feel like it's more than they were just a sponsor. I, I sat in a room with some people at Macworld a long time ago and they said, what's your dream cloud storage? And I said, it'd be my own. Yeah. And that's when they said, well, guess what we're going to make? You know, the, it was before Transporter was even named yet. And it was, I feel bad the way it went down. I like to think that I had something to do with the naming. Oh, did you? No, I, I don't think I did, but it's the transporter. Oh, okay. you, know, you were there. Who really yeah. wants a transporter? I want a transporter. I was like, can yes. you beam me places? And they were like, no. And I'm like, well, I'm well, out. Then, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but but we've heard from some folks that have some ideas. Um, yes. So Martin says that he has found a solution um, that, that works for him. So let's talk about that. Hi, Katie and David. Greetings from Suffolk in England. I wanted to talk about a couple of things that have come up recently on Mac Power users. The first is the issue of managing space on our devices now that many of us are using cloud storage as our main data repository. And the second issue is the sad demise of Connected Data's Transporter as a private cloud option. I've been using a pair of mirrored transporters for some time as a reliable private cloud and my main frontline storage solution. But now that connected data have been bought out and support for the transporter will finish from this autumn, I've moved to a couple of mirrored Lima devices, each connected to a three terabyte disk. One's here in the UK and the other's in Bucharest, Romania, where I also live and where the internet speeds are, in fact, among the best in the world. I have to say it's been a very happy transition. The default with Lima is similar to the transporter's library option where the files are not stored locally, just on the cloud. But there are very easy mechanisms on macOS for managing the status of individual files and entire folders in either locally available or cloud-only mode with a single context menu click. This has helped a lot with the local storage problems. Many of my files are essentially archived and it's so much easier to download active folders from the Lima than it was to remember to shift old inactive files manually to the transporter library. On iOS, transporter files were always kept off the device and downloaded on demand, but this was not persistent. So if you jumped on a plane and expected to find the files, that would lead to disappointment. But with the Lima, it's easy to switch between on-device and off-device modes on either the phone or the iPad. 
So I'm pleased with the change, I think, providing one is sufficiently confident that rolling your own cloud is reliable, then this is a really great approach. So thanks, Katie and David, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, Martin. I, I was not aware of the Lima until this came in. Uh, had you ever heard of it, Katie? No, I'd never heard of it. I, I I'd heard of some similar type products to this. So I don't think the Lima is the first in this category, but uh, you know, it, clearly this is a category that there's a need in. Well, I'm going to start looking around because I, I would like to have my private cloud, you know, again. So I'm not sure which one I'll settle on, but this is what I'm going to be looking into. And, and let us know if you've got something similar that's working for you. Um, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm looking at using the Synology and their cloud sync for a lot of this. And that seems to be be working well for things. Honestly, I'm moving a lot of this now into Dropbox, but, you know, that's that's not a private cloud. So we'll we'll see how that goes. All right. Um, David wrote in to correct me on something. Uh, when we were talking about setting up a new Mac, I mentioned at one point that uh, just take a screenshot of your applications folder. If you're afraid you'll forget about what apps you had on and then you've just, you know, save it somewhere. So when you get to the new device, you can just take a look. Uh, there's actually a way to do that a little smarter than taking a screenshot. Um, uh so he, uh, you can make a copy and paste from Finder into a text file. So if you navigate to your Applications folder, hit Command A to select all your apps, and then Command C and move all your note-taking uh, apps like, uh, of choice, and then hit Command V to paste into a text file. It's going to have a list with the .app files will be pasted in. Uh, there used to be a, a way to do that with a terminal too. In fact, when I was talking about that in the show, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, I know there's a terminal way to do it, but I didn't know offhand the trick. And I felt like just taking a screenshot would be easier than firing up the terminal and getting a list of your apps. But David's method is kind of the best of both worlds. So you can open a note, uh, command C, copy your apps, and then paste them into the note. And then you'd have a nice list. Thank you, David, for sharing that. You know, I seem to remember doing this years and years and years ago, maybe even as far back as an iOS 9. Yeah, I mean, it might have been before OS 10 that this this was a thing. So I think this has been around a while. I think there also used to be a way to do this, um, I want to say, in, um, in uh, the system preferences and the utility, um, anyway, and about this Mac, but that's that's probably... Uh, pretty old. So yeah, Dave, this, this method is probably best. So there, there's a good way to do it now. This would be a cool thing to keep like a list to keep it like in a note and one password would be a good use for this. I want to take a moment and thank our longtime sponsor, 1Password, and tell you a little bit about 1Password for Teams. Did you know that for just $3.99 a month per team member, that your entire team can be safe and secure with 1Password? They can store unlimited passwords, credit cards, secure notes, and more, and securely share those items and documents with your team member, and you can manage that team from an entire admin console. If you own or operate a business of any size, you know that your entire organization is only as secure as your weakest link. And I bet that there is at least one person in your organization who probably is not the most tech savvy and certainly does not have the best password policy. 
policies. 1Password for Teams gives you full control over who has access to your team's most important information, and you can share the simple security of 1Password with everyone. And it's common practice that people in organizations have to share passwords. Maybe it's a common login to a service that you use, and emailing passwords is just horrible security. Or worse yet, do you have post-it notes with your passwords? Or I knew in one of the organizations I used to belong to, there were people who had entire lists of passwords that were laminated and taped to the side of their desktop monitor. How safe is that? Not at all. 1Password for Teams makes it super simple to keep your passwords safe and to securely share those passwords with the whole office. But not everybody in your team needs access to all of your passwords. So that's where the admin console comes in. You get to decide who has access to what types of passwords. Maybe everybody gets access to certain passwords. Maybe only certain people in certain teams get access to other passwords. And you as the admin get to decide who they are. As admin, you can deploy and create all the vaults that your team needs to assign access without ever leaving the admin console. You can grow your team as needed, invite team members one by one, or automate sign-up. You can even micromanage specific members of your team and determine who has access to see passwords, to change passwords, and everything in between. And it's going to happen. They're going to forget their passwords. So as the admin, it has an innovative feature that you have the exclusive ability to restore access to an account if that master password is lost. So get your team on board, up your security game, head over to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps and get a special offer for all of your password needs. And thanks Agile Bits for your continued support of Mac Power users. We also heard, you know, we talked in our last episode about uh, backing up NAS and network attached storage, because that can be complicated. Um, you know, some of the cloud storage solutions like Backblaze don't natively allow you to back up a network attached storage, just direct attached storage. Um, but there is a solution for that. And CJ has one. So let's hear from CJ. Hi, David and Katie. This is CJ from Plymouth, Massachusetts, just two minutes from Plymouth Rock and the Mayflower. I was listening to show 359, Big Questions. And I had a solution that could help people back up data on their network-attached storage, or NAS devices. Normally, a backup service like Backblaze only backs up local and connected drives, and does not back up data on NAS drives. However, Backblaze recently started a service called B2 Cloud Storage, which is similar to Amazon S3. According to Backblaze, B2 Cloud Storage is over five times cheaper per gigabyte than Amazon S3 storage. Backblaze charges one-half cent per gigabyte per month for storage, which is about $5 per terabyte per month. On my Synology NAS, there is an app called CloudSync, which allows you to directly connect to B2 Cloud Storage once you've already signed up for an account. Input your credentials into CloudSync and start syncing to B2 Storage. It's all done directly on the Synology NAS device, so there's no need for any third-party syncing tools. Check out the pricing at backblaze.com slash B2. I've been using it for a few months with no problems, and I've paid about $3 to store several hundred gigabytes of important photos and documents. This type of storage is not something I'd use as a daily backup, as it could take weeks to download several terabytes of data from the cloud. Having local backup is still very important, but it's nice to know you have everything stored off-site in case of a catastrophe, even on your difficult-to-backup NAS devices. I love your show and keep up the great work. Thanks, CJ. And it is nice to see competition showing up in these various uh, methods to do online backup. But when we first started talking about this stuff, 
it was super hard. And Google was like the only company that could do it. Then Amazon got involved because of just the amount of data they were pushing. But as we see smaller and smaller companies able to put marketable products up for this type of uh, backup and just general cloud services, I think that's only good for the future of software development and cloud storage. I guess the only thing I would add to that is make sure that you trust the company that you're working with, you know, before you start, if you have any sort of sensitive data that you're going to put up. We were talking about, um, I think, setting up a new Mac. And uh, our good friend Tim wrote in about syncing a large Dropbox folder. And you and I talked about how much data that we have stored in Dropbox now, although not as much as Tim. Tim has about 94 gigabytes in his Dropbox folder. And talked about how easy it is now that so much of our data just syncs in Dropbox that once we install Dropbox, boom, most of our data is is back on our Mac and, and it's easy to do. And Dropbox does give you the option to sync over LAN so that you're not necessarily re-downloading all of that data uh, from the internet, but maybe you don't have another device on your local area network that has a copy of your Dropbox data. So Tim writes in with a solution. He says, I have a sizable amount of data in Dropbox, about 94 gigabytes, and I found that downloading that much data from Dropbox servers can take a while, even over a fast connection. It's much more efficient, both in terms of bandwidth, to copy the contents of the Dropbox folder from a backup, make sure you have that backup right before you do this migration, uh, of the old computer before installing Dropbox. Once Dropbox is installed, it will process the contents of the Dropbox folder and will only sync those files and folders that have been modified or added. Okay, so I guess it's okay. It'll, it'll tweak it if there have been some changes. I checked with Dropbox support to make sure that there aren't any caveats to this approach, and their specific comment was this. You can physically move the files from one folder to the other using LAN, external drive, etc. And when moving large files, this would be the quickest way to go about it. As long as the files are placed in the Dropbox folder, they'll continue to sync as usual. So that's good to know, that if you have a backup and you've already got those files over there anyway, just move the entire Dropbox folder over wire, move, you know, then install the Dropbox app and Dropbox will just sync up whatever the changes are. I was speaking at a conference last year and there was a uh, former Dropbox engineer there and I was talking to her about this question and just general how Dropbox knows what's gospel when it goes through. And they've got a fairly sophisticated system, but it really comes down to checksums. You know, each file has a very unique identifier to it so they can tell when it's a file that that's already in the system or already uh, supposed to be synced to your drive. So the trick with this is when you copy it over, the, it has the same checksum on the files. That these are the exact same files. You can't change. You can't add a comma on page twenty-two, or it it fails the checksum. So long as it's the same stuff, I guess it would work. I'm a little nervous about doing it. I I think I would just rather, unless I'm really in a hurry, I would just rather let it just do its thing and let Dropbox feel that way. But this is also explains why sometimes you go to upload a large file to Dropbox and it uploads remarkably fast. You know, it seems like, you know, a super large file and then it's just up in Dropbox because they, the checksum works in the other direction too. As I understand when Dropbox sees a file and they, it, it measures against something on their server, especially if it's like a file you had before, then it, um, then it, it doesn't require you to re-upload it. It already is there. And isn't that true if it's like a file that somebody else has, like it's a popular file, like I'm going to say an installer or something like that? 
Yeah, I don't have to answer the question, but I can tell you my world, real world example is um, occasionally I put some of my um, my books, these video field guides and things up on Dropbox to share for one reason or another. And I don't normally keep them there, but whenever I go to upload them again, they get there very quickly because, and I, I'm sure it, it recognizes it's something I've had up there before. Hopefully uh, it's not on somebody else's Dropbox that it's pulling it off of, but it's mine. Yeah. Is it? Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm serving it out for you, David. I'm only charging three dollars for the field guide. Yeah, well, you know, you get, everybody's got to make a buck. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, at the end of the year, we had a pretty popular episode called "Workflows That Worked," and we thought it was a nice way to uh, wrap up the end of the year and talk about what are the workflows that were working for us, um, what were the things that we were looking forward to improving for 2017. And we had a couple of listeners who we had more than a couple, but we, we picked a couple. Uh, we had a couple of listeners who wanted to get on that game as well. So uh, let's start out with uh, Paul. Hi, David and Katie Floyd. Upon listening to episode 352, Workflows with Ian Bird, I hear a repeated problem of task management within teams. We have our own systems which work great for ourselves, but what do we do when we want to get others involved? I had this problem earlier this year, where my task management solution, which was OmniFocus, was working great for me. But how can I share these teachings with my colleagues and have a solution where we, as a team, can view and review and keep track of these tasks? I was seeking preferably a free solution that was universal, as I am the only Mac user, but was also quick and easy to use. In the end, I settled on Productive, that's product eev.com. Productive is now owned by Jive and is currently free, but it enables me to create tasks easily, add them to projects, even add subtasks and tags. It also enables me to delegate those tasks to my team and for them to forward emails directly into Productive to automatically create those tasks. The various views from whether it's an iPhone, iPad, its own desktop app, or even the web, enable me and my managers to quickly see who is overloaded, who is slipping behind with late tasks, and provides a place to keep related conversations or related material. It's been in situ here now for several months, and it's proven to be very effective. I can't recall the number of times my managing director has said, Hey Paul, where are you with Project X? to which I whip out my nearest device and in two taps sound like I have a complete handle on every micro-action my team is doing. Again, thank you for all your efforts and hard work in keeping this podcast going, guys. When I jumped onto a Mac, it was your podcast which has taught me so much and cost me quite a lot, and it's the only one which has stood the test of time and that I still listen to. So again, thank you, and I hope Productive is useful to your listeners. Thanks, Paul. I hadn't heard of that one. And, um, and you're not alone. We hear from a lot of listeners that tell us how much money we've cost them. <laughs> a little bit. It does go both ways a lot of time, too, though. Yes. I, I just look at all the Sonos around my house, and I have all of you folks to thank for it. Yeah. Uh, Rosemary, who I think might be flying transcontinental to join us in Chicago. How cool is that? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, wrote, uh, uh, called, wrote, emailed something. She somehow got us this audio comment. I don't think it was by Carrier Pigeon uh, about uh, an expense report workflow that was working for her. Hi, Katie and David. This is Rose here from the UK. You mentioned in the latest show you were interested in workflows, which have saved us time in the last year. And I've managed to save my mum about a week of work per year. 
Thanks to Hazel, Scanner Pro, Automator, AppleScript, Workflow, the iOS app, and some mail rules, I've managed to auto- almost entirely automate the accounting books for her business. PDF receipts received via email are automatically saved to a folder, and other messages are exported as EML, then converted to PDF. In-person receipts are scanned with Scanner Pro, and if there's no receipt, she's got a workflow that she runs. Hazel renames all of these files to have the correct date, merchant, and value, then it converts all these PDFs to images. Finally, when she needs to do the accounting to send it off to the accountant, she runs an Apple script, which I found on Dr. Drang's blog and modified a little. It inputs all the values from the receipt images and pastes the images there for verification. While this might sound complicated, and it did take a while to set up, it's absolutely been worth the payoff. I really recommend that everybody look at the script on Dr. Drang's blog, because I think there are multiple applications for it for everyone. Have a very happy new year to all of you. I think Rose has majorly hit the trifecta there. She's got all the the classics, the MPU classics there. Pushing all my buttons. That's all I can say. And she mentioned Dr. Drang. Anytime you get the clown, you know. You mentioned the clown, you get extra points. The snowman. He's a snowman. In my nightmares, it's a clown. Oh, I'm pretty sure he's a snowman. Yeah. Beck, you told us that story. You know, we should probably have Dr. Drang back on the Mac Power users. It's been years, and I bet he's got some good ideas. Isn't he in Chicago? He is. I wonder if I he's... wasn't going to say that. I'm not sure we're allowed to say that. Oh, well, he could come. He could be registered for our meetup right now, and we don't even know it. Yes. Oh, I think he lives in a bunker where he's protected by snowmen and clowns. Do you think he'll come in a in the snowman suit? Uh, I could only wish. Oh. Or even just like a really ugly Christmas sweater. That would be good enough. There you go. All right, Dr. Drang, it's on. All right, let's, uh, we've got our last uh, workflow that works from Carl here. Hi, David and Katie. This is Kalle Svensson saying hello to you from Gothenburg in Sweden. I want to tell you about the workflow that I used with great success during 2016. I study at the university here in Gothenburg, and I use mind mapping as a tool to organize my studies. Typically what I do is I use the app MindNode in split screen on my iPad Pro. On the other half of the screen, I usually keep a Notability or a Safari window and copy-paste information into the notes in MindNode. However, since I study engineering, at times there are lots of mathematical formulas and figures that I wish to include in my mind map. And since my professors often write their own books and publish them as PDFs, I have benefited from using the app Liquid Text in the following way. I open the PDF in Liquid Text and scroll to the interesting part. I then use my Apple Pencil to image select in Liquid Text. This is done by keeping the pencil in one spot for about a second and then dragging a rectangle around the thing I want to copy. In the little window that appears, I can press copy. The selection is copied as an image and can be pasted into any of the nodes in my mind map. This way, mathematical formulas and figures can be included in my mind map without the need to screenshot and crop the images. So this saves me a great deal of time every time I do it. Thank you guys for doing such a great show and keep up the good work in many years to come. We, I don't know, have we ever mentioned, I've written about liquid text at Max Sparky. I don't know that we've ever mentioned it on the show. Are you familiar with this app, Katie? I'm familiar with the app, but I don't know. I feel like maybe some of our guests have talked about it, or maybe we had a presentation on it at Milo Fest. I don't know that we've talked about it on MPU. It's, it's awesome. It, it is a great app. And it, it's just like a totally different way to think about PDFs, where you kind of pinch in the document to compress text. Like with contracts, I can pinch and just, so if I want to see a clause on page two and a clause 
on, on page six, I can just compress the document and have them right next to each other. Um, it, it is not a replacement for PDF pen or PDF expert or whatever your PDF annotation tool of choice is. It's like a different way about going about PDFs. Uh, you know, like the, so the traditional PDF applications have always kind of taken the approach. Let's take the, what we used to do with a pa- paper and a pencil or a pen, and let's put that on a digital device. This is something you could only do on a digital device. It's a completely different way to think about it. And some people try it and love it. And some people try it and it just doesn't work for them. But uh, we're going to put it in the show notes. I recommend going out and checking out Liquid Text because there's some real power on this app. And uh, I think I, I kind of boosted the uh, the comment. I mean, the, but, you know, the, the rest of what he was saying, though, about the split screen, I think all that makes sense. But Liquid Text to me was the real winner of that of that um, audio comment. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Fujitsu ScanSnap, superior document scanning for your Mac and iOS devices. Head to budurl.me slash SSMPU to learn more. Unfortunately, the rest of the world isn't enlightened like the rest of us Mac Power Users, and they still use a lot of paper. So you're getting these documents in every day, and how do you get them into your computer? There's nothing better than the Fujitsu ScanSnap to do this. Fujitsu's been making these scanners for years now. In fact, I was just visiting a relative recently, and she had my 10-year-old scanner that I bought from Fujitsu, and she's still using it. These guys love Mac and Apple platforms, and they have lots of support for them. And Fujitsu makes these in every size. They've got the one that can sit on your desk down to one that can fit in your briefcase or your purse. But I want to talk today about the Fujitsu ScanSnap iX500. That's the desktop scanner. I love this thing so much because it sits right next to me on my desk. I use it every day. The iX500 is full duplex. That means it's got a scanner on both sides. So as you put a double-sided piece of paper through it, it gets the scanning on both sides of the paper with one pass. And it's got a 50-sheet feeder. You can put a big pile of paper on top of this thing, and it'll just zip through that, catching it 25 pages per minute. It uses USB 3.0, so if you plug it into your Mac, it's going to get that data across super fast. And it can also scan directly to your mobile devices. Uh, You can quickly bypass the computer to scan an image, enhance PDF or JPEG directly to iOS or Android mobile devices with the Fujitsu ScanSnap. They also have an advanced paper feeding system with this iX500, uh, inheriting the superior paper feeding technology of the professional grade scanners that Fujitsu makes. So the iX500 achieves exceptional feeding reliability using what they call a separation roller technology to minimize jams and multi-feeds. And this is another one that I can attest to. I'm always throwing paper at this thing. It just never has a problem. It comes with great software. It can work with the Mac or PC. But the best thing I can say about my Fujitsu ScanSnap is I just never have to worry about it. It sits here, and when documents come into me, I stick it in there, I push the blue button, and it immediately gets scanned and OCR'd using the Fujitsu software. It's just a problem solved. And you can solve that problem, too, with a Fujitsu ScanSnap. Now, I want you to go to this URL. It's called budurl, B-U-D-U-R-L dot me slash SSMPU. That's for ScanSnap Mac Power Users. I'll put a link in the show notes as well, but that way they know you came from the Mac Power Users and that makes us look great. And we always want to look great. So check out a ScanSnap today and get those piles of paper out of your life. 
So, David, before we close out, uh, let's talk a little bit about the tech that we are playing with. Um, I know last time we got together, we were talking about the AirPods. Uh, we talked a little bit about them today in the context of losing them. I haven't lost them yet. I guess you lost and then found yours. Uh, I lost them in the sheets of my bed. <laughs> I don't want to know. Okay. Um, There's nothing nefarious. I just was listening to music and then I put them in the case and then put them on the table and they ended up in my sheets. But uh, yeah, um, so this week uh, or this month, I bought something that I'm really uh, happy to share with people. Now, you know, uh, Microsoft came out with the Surface Pro uh, computer, which I wrote about at Max Berkey. It's basically an iMac on a big hinge where it turns into a an oversized tablet computer. Um, I went and played with it for a while. I, you know, it's it's a it's a good effort. I am um, I'm not a super big fan of the way Windows works or frankly, some of the lag. It's just, there's some issues I have with it, but I don't want to really start that religious war today. But it did get me thinking about, you know, tablet computing and working on a drafting table type computer. And I have this big sized iPad and I got thinking, well, maybe I'll try and do it. So I, I got a couple of my um, stands out, my stump and a couple other things I've had over the years. And none of them were really working at kind of that drafting table angle. So then I got searching on the internet and sure enough, I found one from Elevation Labs and it's called, surprise, surprise, Draft Table uh, from Elevation Labs. Uh, so it is an iPad stand that has, it's very solid. I mean, it's got, you know, one of the problems I had doing this with some of the other devices is they didn't fully support the back of the device. So it would tilt as I was writing on it. But this thing's solid. It can hold the large size iPad or the regular size iPad. It's got three different legs behind it. So you can set three different heights. It comes with um, a like a kind of a thing you can rest your hand on to kind of give you a little bit more support for your hand. It also comes with a really cool Apple pencil stand that uh, has um, those micro suction cups on the bottom. So you can have it either just kind of stick to the table or you can leave the, the plastic on it and it can move around. Uh, but the real winner of this thing is it's just this wide angle adjustment range of something that's an absolute rock solid platform for your iPad. So how have I been using it? I've had it now two or three weeks. I've got it in the lowest mode sitting on my desk next to my iMac with the pencil. And I keep like OmniFocus and some things in there that always made sense to me to use with the pencil. And I just keep it there. And I work with that as a separate input device as I'm working on my computer. I have also taking it you know, downstairs or I'm throwing it in my bag and put it on a table and just use the device itself in drafting table mode. And I have to say, I really like this. It makes me curious about the future and maybe an even bigger size iPad someday that is truly a computer replacement once the operating system gets a little smarter and you know, being able to use iOS in that way. So it was a $100 investment. It cost me $99 to buy it, but I I think I'm really enjoying it. And um, if anybody else out there is curious about trying to use iOS in this kind of drafting table mode, I would recommend giving it a shot. I want to talk a little bit about the display that I bought for my new MacBook Pro. Um, as you know, David, the MacBook Pro um, 2016 was my very first Retina uh, Mac. And you told me that it would ruin me. And so I figured I needed to go out and have a, a Retina display to go with it, particularly because the way that I use my MacBook Pro on my desk, I typically keep it you know, elevated and off to the right side. And then I like to have a little bit larger display um, in the center of my desk. Uh, to use with an external keyboard and mouse. 
And so I went back and forth, really looked at the new LG Apple 5K display for various reasons, decided not to buy that. One obviously was cost. Um, it was it was very, very pricey. And then it just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And it, it's finally shipping now. Um, I think there is still quite a significant weight on it. But um, just, you know, Apple kind of lost that purchase on me. So after consulting the wire cutter, the expert in all these things, uh, as well as Twitter and a bunch of our friends, uh, I ultimately decided on a Dell, which was a little surprising for me. But I got the Dell Ultra HD 4K monitor. Uh, it is a 24-inch screen. I almost went with the 27-inch, but just looking at my desk size and, and where I sit in relation to it, um, after kind of mapping it out, I realized the 27-inch was going to be a little big for my space. And a lot of people said, if you go 27 inch, you really need to go 5K. Um, you know, 4K is pretty good if you're going to go 20, 24 inch or smaller. So this is an Ultra HD 3840 by 2160 resolution screen. Uh, it has over 8 million pixels. Um, it is a beautiful screen. It's uh, very, very crisp and clear. Every time I look at text on this screen, it, it's almost like I have to do a little double take. It's like, this doesn't quite look right, but I mean that in a good way. It's, it's almost like I'm not quite looking at a computer screen. If that makes yeah, sense. Your brain is used to seeing pixels your whole life and now they're not there. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not real sure what I'm looking at here. Um, but it's because it's still relatively new. Um, I was able to buy it off of Amazon. Um, I actually got a little bit of a better deal on it because I was able to get one of their, uh, their warehouse deals. It, uh, ended up costing me a little bit because, um, mine was missing a power cord from the box, which sometimes these things can happen when you buy open box warehouse deals. So I had to order a power cord, but thankfully it was a standard one and, and that was okay. Um, the, the, one of the things I like about the monitor, it does have some standard, uh, I connect it all. Um, I have to connect a power cord and then it also has a USB hub built in with some standard USB ports. Um, so I connect that to my USB hub and then I also connect it with a, um, I, I use a, um, mini display to, uh, USB-C adapter. So I had to buy that, but, um, you know, so it's, it's multiple things to plug in. You know, one of the benefits of the Apple display was that it, um, you know, it's just one cable that powers everything. But for the really significant price difference, I mean, this monitor has a list price of $600, but is currently selling on Amazon for $382. I, I mean, it's just night and day in terms of what I was looking at with my old monitor. So I'm very, very pleased with the quality. Uh, you know, and I could have bought three of these for what I could have bought the Apple display for practically. Yeah, the Apple one is north of a thousand bucks now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, maybe I mean, not. not the, it's not even Apple. It's uh, it's the LG one. So I couldn't yeah. quite buy three, but you know, you're getting close there. Um, and if I ultimately decide I want to get a little higher resolution display or if I want to go true 5K or if I want to go 27 inch, so, but at, you know, 380 to 400 bucks, I have absolutely no problem, you know, taking this display, maybe moving it down and using it as the display in my office, which is still going to be an upgrade, and then getting something new. So um, I'm very, very pleased with this purchase. Um, they do have a 27-inch 4K version, um, and then they also have a 27-inch 5K version of this display as well. Um, obviously, those are a little more expensive. And I've had a lot of people say, if you're going to go 27-inch, you probably want to bump up and and go with the 5k version 
So you were saying that uh, you're still at the point where you look at it once on you have to stop and realize that this is a monitor or not like a piece of paper. Well, I mean, I, I know it's not a piece of paper because it's glowing back at me, but. Well, I mean, like the print quality. Di- yeah. Yeah. It has a different look to it. Yeah. So so that's new for you. Now, this is what's going to happen to you. And this is why I told you this is going to ruin you. At some point, you will stop having that experience of looking at it and being shocked at how good it is. And it's just going to be your screen. And then one day you'll just somehow, you know, wander onto a computer that doesn't have that monitor, that high res monitor. And then you're going to have the exact opposite problem. Every time you look at that, you're going to be angry. That's the, this is the, this is the course, course that you're on. You, you haven't got there yet because it's, you're still not used to it. But once you get used to it, there is no going back. Yeah. Well, and again, that was one of the benefits of it by it, by it only being a, by it being a sub $400 display. I'll just, at that point, I'll just buy another one, you know, and still come out cheaper. Maybe that's why ultimately Apple got out of this business because they there is such good quality at such reasonable prices that they just can't get the margin that they want to get. Right. Now, in my case, you know, I do have the 13 inch higher end MacBook Pro, which means I have four ports. And so I have some ports to spare and it's okay when I'm using it mounted at my desk. In fact, right now, as we record this podcast is one of the very, very rare occasions that I use all four ports because I have one port charging, one port dedicated to the monitor, one port I have plugged into a USB hub, and then one port I have plugged into my Rode podcaster. But so I think, I think you might have a problem um, you know, having a dedicated port to the monitor, maybe if you had that lower end 13 inch, or if you had a, um, you know, if you didn't have a dock or if you didn't have another adapter, you know, and, and plugging it into a separate port might be a problem, you know, but I, I have no problem with it now. I know, um, we're approaching the witching hour, but, but what are you thinking about, um, your, your MacBook pro now that you're a month or two in? Well, you know, I had a pretty negative experience with it initially. Uh, I, I basically got a lemon. And um, I think that kind of um, shaded my entire experience with the MacBook Pro, because I just was not happy with the machine in general. I will tell you, since that whole kerfuffle has now been resolved, and I have not had any problems with this replacement MacBook Pro, I've been a whole lot happier. Uh, the, the speed is good. I love the size. I love the weight. Now that I've got all of my devices properly adapted, uh, the USB-C has not been an issue. I think that was more of an annoyance at first as I had to go out and get adapters and cables and things. The adapters are now in my bag and I don't see them. And everything at my desk is now adapted with a cable, so it's a non-issue. And so day-to-day, it's not an issue. The keyboard is growing on me. Um, I still won't tell you that I like it, but I'll tell you at the I'm at the point where I no longer hate it. Um, and it doesn't seem to cause me issues if I have to type on it for a couple of hours. I still don't type on it as my primary keyboard. I I type on an external keyboard, um, with the machine docked at my computer most of the time from day to day. And so that that's good. I think if I had to type on it all day long as my primary keyboard, it, it would be a lot more annoying. I will tell you that I'm really not finding many uses for the touch power, uh, touch bar, Part of that's probably, again, because my computer is docked and, um, you know, it's it's kind of a reach to get to the touch bar. 
But well, if you're using an external keyboard, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you would. Yeah. yeah. But even when I'm using my, I mean, I'm probably using it 90, 10, maybe, maybe 85, 15 docked versus not docked. And even when I'm using it, not, um, not docked, I really am not using the touch bar at all. I'm using the touch bar, um, for touch ID. I really like touch ID, especially with things like one password. And I, I've con- I've configured the touch bar and I've, I've, I've edited it. So I've got like the lock icon on the touch bar now. And so I use it as a very quick way to lock my Mac and I've done that, but I, I don't use it that often. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I, I, um, I only use the laptop when I use it in laptop mode. I don't use ever use it with an external keyboard, but I don't use it a great deal. The laptop itself. Um, I, I find as a power user that anytime the touch bar is replacing keyboard shortcuts, there's a good chance that I'm already doing the keyboard shortcuts and it doesn't help me. Uh, like Apple notes is a good example. You want a bold text? I can hit, you know, command B. All the stuff is just under my fingers. A heading is, is a, a command shift H, you know, and I know, I just know that. So my fingers do it. So all that stuff in the touch bar is, is useless to me. However, there are some apps and this is, I think we're going to have an interesting year because app developers are going to start figuring this out. Um, there are some apps that do things in the touch bar that aren't necessarily easily done with keyboard shortcuts. And in those cases, I find it more useful. Um, the example I keep telling people about is um, in fantastic how I can, I can move to specific dates um, without taking my hands off the keyboard using the touch bar, which I find useful. And, um, the other people in my house, we, we all kind of share this laptop too. Uh, the, the non-power users, I observing them, see them using the touch bar quite a bit for keyboard shortcut type things. So I think it depends where you're coming in. Like if your mom had one of those, I bet she would use the touch bar a lot for things that you wouldn't. Um, but it, it's an interesting, I just was curious to check in. I, I'm glad that you're happy with it. And, um, and I'm happy with mine too. So, uh, it, it, there was a lot of blowback on this computer. We still hear from listeners that are thinking about switching because they're so upset with the way this MacBook pro came down. Um, I can say for the types of things I do, uh, the trade-offs they made made sense, but you know, I'm not a software developer and I understand that if you do make software, 16 gigabytes of Ram isn't enough. Okay. I think we've covered the list for a while. Wow. Well, we definitely want people to keep sending their feedback in. I was thrilled we had so many audio comments this episode. Again, you can keep them under two minutes. A lot of people send them in using the uh, voice recorder app on iOS. That works well. Um, It works well if you send us a file that you can attach to an email. A lot of people send us like Dropbox links and things like that. It gets a little more convoluted. Uh, But you can send those to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Keep it under two minutes and we'll go from there. You can also follow the show. Like I said, we've got our Facebook group. Uh, You can follow the show on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd and David is at MacSparky. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our sponsors, Away, Sanebox, 1Password, and Fujitsu. And we'll see you all next week.